Welcome back to another exciting episode here at Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club. I'm Samoda. Now this month's episode is slightly different to our previous episodes. Given the current pandemic here in Sydney, we are holding this session over Zoom. This is the Lockdown Special, an episode filled with very relevant emergency medicine topics, Kit's Corner, the interlude and an epic new segment on statistics. Without further ado, let's go through our panel. Hi, I'm Kit, I'm one of the advanced trainees at Westmead Hospital. Hi, I'm Shreyas. I'm another one of the emergency registrars at Westmead. Hi, I'm Harry, uh, one of the DSRMOs. Hi, I'm Caroline, also an ED trainee at Westmead and I'm back for another month. Hi, I'm Yulise. I'm one of the ED registrars and happy to be back and talking with you guys again. Hey, my name's Pramod. I'm one of the Nepean staff specialists back for another episode. First up, we have Kit, who will talk about a systematic review by Claire Morley et al. The paper is called Emergency Medicine Crowding, a Systematic Review of Courses, Consequences and Solutions. Thanks so much, Sam. Look, I've chosen to bite off a big topic because it's one that consumes a lot of our daily lives and I think is one of the big kind of uh, issues that ED faces. I was flicking through the EMA last week and every second article seemed to be on access block or waiting times. Uh, and that's where I really felt that I should should go with this and, and, and talk about this. So I'm presenting uh, Emergency Department Crowding, a Systematic Review of Causes, Consequences and Solutions by Morley et al, who are a Tasmanian group. It's quite dense. There's quite a lot to unpack, but I'm anticipating a lot will come from discussion of this paper. So this study was from PLOS One uh, in 2018. It's a systematic review of studies investigating the causes and consequences of and solutions to ED crowding. The PRISMA guidelines were followed and relevant studies were acquired through a structured search of four databases after all the exclusions and duplicates were removed, 102 studies remaining. Uh, notably, paediatric ED studies were excluded. Now, of these, 95% were quantitative, 87% were retrospective. There were four RCTs evaluating potential solutions, uh, with the remaining studies being either mixed method or statistical modelling studies. Most were from the US, 47%, with 18% from Australia and 9% from Canada. Only 14 studies actually investigated potential causes, with 51% of studies uh, looking at potential solutions to and 39% looking at consequences of ED crowding. Using the sign appraisal tool, 59% of the studies were rated as being acceptable quality, with 7% high and 34% low quality. And the findings were presented in quite an interesting way. So divided again into consequences in terms of patient, staff and system level effects, causes in terms of input into ED, throughput within ED and output out of ED, and solutions divided in the same way. In terms of consequences of ED overcrowding, the following were observed. So one study noted a significant delay in time to balloon inflation for AMI and cath lab. Delays in undergoing surgery for fractured NOFs were noted. 
delays to timely care in an acute stroke situation and time to medication administration, including antibiotics and analgesics and patients' home medications. We also saw significant delays in exposure to error reported, as well as an increased frequency of medication errors and blood culture contamination. A positive association between ED crowding and inpatient length of stay was seen in all five studies that examined that, with one Australian study of nearly 12,000 admitted patients citing a mean increased length of stay, 0.8 days per patient in patients who experienced access block, which appeared to be independent of illness severity or diagnosis and greatest in the out-of-hours setting. The majority of papers looking at inpatient mortality related to ED crowding reported that crowding worsened as mortality increased. Three studies found no relationship between ED crowding and mortality, but two of these were inpatient subsets, and the third reported no association at 10 days of admission after adjusting for severity of illness. Seven studies, however, did find worsening mortality outcomes, though with substantial variation in the designs and populations of the studies and substantial variation in the surrogate markers that were used for ED crowding, which is a bit of a nebulous concept. In terms of the consequences of crowding to staff, studies picked up on increased stress, increased exposure to violence in two studies and non-adherence to best practice guidelines. System consequences included both increased ED and inpatient length of stay. And one large American multi-site cohort study reported that the numbers of patients in the waiting room had the greatest impact on time spent in the waiting room. The number of boarders in the ED was the most consistent factor associated with delays in ED care, but that ED crowding had little effect on time to treatment. The medium ED length of stay was increased among studies in both high and low acuity patients of note. When it comes to the causes of ED crowding. This was an area with the least research and included only 14 studies. And a lot of these qualitative studies that dealt with perceived causes, um, normally surveys. In terms of input to ED, increases in types of presentations, including those with urgent and complex needs, were seen in five studies. Low acuity presentations in two studies and presentations by the elderly in four studies as the main drivers of ED crowding, with crowding worsening as the mean age of patients in the ED increased reportedly. Four studies identified poor access to primary care as a cause of ED crowding. One large UK study predicted that 10.2% fewer self-referred ED visits for GP practices ranked in the top quintile for access, with patients able to secure GP appointment within two days less likely to self-refer to ED with low acuity conditions. And one Canadian study determining access to a primary care provider had the potential of a 40% reduction in triage category four and five ED visits. The throughput studies included, uh, unfortunately were all low quality and predominantly opinion-based studies, but highlighted that ED nursing staff shortages, delays in receiving laboratory test results and delays in patient disposition decisions uh, were all potential causes of ED crowding. One Japanese modelling study assessed that adding one junior doctor to a shift actually increased the ED length of stay for discharge patients by one minute, but with no statistically significant effect on ED length of stay for admitted patients. Now, all studies that looked at the output factors as a cause of ED crowding concluded that access block, and that is the ability to transfer a patient out of ED into an inpatient bed once their ED treatment has been completed, was the major contributor. 
One Canadian study reported a significant relationship between ED crowding and hospital occupancy, with a 10% increase in hospital occupancy, leading to an 18-minute increase in the average ED length of stay. Similarly, an Australian group found a linear relationship between ED occupancy during periods of hospital access block and total ED occupancy, with a similar relationship noted between access block and ambulance diversion and ED length of stay. An American study reported a significant positive relationship between the mean ED length of stay for both intensive care and telemetry bed census, but with no significant relationship between ED crowding and total hospital census, but they qualified that the majority of their study was undertaken on days of less than 90% hospital occupancy. In one interesting Australian study, 13 days of industrial action led to cancellation of all elective surgery and significant reduction in access block days and ED length of stay for patients allocated triage categories two to five were noted and in patients who did not wait for treatment as well. Now, as for arguably the most important results, the solutions, 52 of the included studies trialled, modelled or suggested potential solutions to ED crowding. In one Australian study, a 19% lower wait time for Category 2 patients in EDs with a co-located GP was reported when compared to EDs without a GP, with a reduction of 8.3% GP-type presentation to adult EDs reported on modelling a GP walking clinic in a UK study. Pilot opening of GP practices in central London noted a 17.9% reduction in weekend ED attendances by patients registered with practices involved in the pilot program, with a 19% fall in admissions among the elderly and a 29% reduction in elderly cases arriving by ambulance. Another UK study reported a 26% relative reduction in patients self-referring with minor problems after investigating later opening hours and seven-day opening of GPs. The opening of an after-hours GP in a regional Australian study resulted in a significant 8.2% daily decrease in Category 4 and 5 Australasian triage scale ED presentations, but noted an increase in ED presentations of category one to three or high acuity presentations of 1.36 per day. Conversely, another Australian model concluded that providing after-hour GP services was unlikely to reduce ED attendance. In a Singaporean study, public education campaigns were found to be effective initially on presentation numbers, but not sustained. Implementation of financial disincentives for non-emergency presentations did reduce presentations once the fee exceeded the fees charged by primary healthcare clinics, and redirection of non-emergent presentations was initially successful, but was discontinued due to negative hospital PR. Within the ED itself, the majority of studies focused on expediting patients' throughput within their ED mission, including one study from Westmead. With early physician assessment, seven of the eight studies reported significant decreases in ED length of stay, with four reporting significant decreases in numbers of patients who either leave without being seen or did not wait. In one Dutch study, medical team evaluation, including team triage and a quick registration process, showed a significant increase in ED length of stay for patients in triage categories two to four, regardless of their discharge destination. Uh, this was attributed to an increase in radiology orders for unworked up patients. Five groups looked at a physician in triage model with all reporting a significant reduction in ED length of stay, finding this to apply only for patients who were subsequently discharged. 
with one study also demonstrating significant decreases in both seven-day and 30-day mortality. Fast-track use or flexible care area use were examined by two studies, both reporting significant reductions in ED length of stay for low-acuity patients. Reducing laboratory turnaround times also had significant reduction on ED length of stay in four studies, as did the introduction of an ED nurse flow coordinator, which led to a 4.9% significant increase in the number of patients meeting the Australian NEAT targets, uh, with which I think we're all too familiar with. And this was replicated by a number of similar studies with a decreased ED length of stay. Interestingly, a Korean study that used a short text message reminder when ED patients waited for more than two or more than four hours for inpatient consultations resulted in a significant 36-minute reduction in median ED length of stay for admitted patients. The expansion of an American ED with no changes in staffing ratios resulted in a significant 20-hour-per-day increase in ED boarding. However, one New Zealand study demonstrated the provision of extra ED beds alongside additional ED nursing and medical staff uh, resulted in a decreased median ED length of stay. Solutions looking at output from ED included one American study that resulted in a 98-minute average reduction in ED length of stay for admitted patients as well as reduction in the number of hours that the hospital was on ambulance alert when an active bed management strategy focused on getting patients out of ED was implemented. Similarly, an intervention that included the implementation of a position to ensure timely identification and allocation of beds, coupled with an improved communication and education for staff around a new bed management strategy, resulted in a 21% decrease in ED length of stay for admitted patients and a 52% reduction in boarding time in one American ED. Another study that endeavoured to identify different strategies used by high-performing, low-performing and improving hospitals found that no outcomes were related to performance level per se, but did, however, report that four organisational domains were associated with high-performing hospitals, one of which was executive leadership involvement. With the introduction of NEATS targets, one study reported a significant increase in the number of patients leaving ED within the four hours, a significant reduction in access block, but a significant increase in inpatient length of stay and an increase in the numbers of inter-unit transfers within 48 hours of admission, possibly by rushed referrals by ED staff in an effort to meet targets. One study, while noting significant decreases in ED length of stay and inpatient mortality, saw a small but statistically significant increase in representations to the ED within 48 hours. Increased use of short-stay units was also noted in one study to be associated with a reduction in ED length of stay, but this reduction slowed in later years, suggesting that short-stay units were used in an effort to meet targets, sometimes without clinical justification, and this has also been replicated in similar studies. We need to look at this paper closely to gain an idea of the factors that influence ED crowding. And I think it just serves to demonstrate the multifaceted nature of ED overcrowding and to identify areas that need particular research focus. And they do point out that there's a notable paucity of research uh, into the causes of overcrowding and maybe slightly more research into the kind of proposed solutions, many of which kind of show mixed benefit. I'd be interested to hear what everyone else thinks. Thanks, Kit. 
Overall, what do you think of the paper? Could you perhaps go through some of the strengths and limitations of the article? I think it's an important paper because it looks at all of the research, you know, since 2000, I believe. It kind of says, look, this is actually not just an ED problem. This is a problem that goes well beyond this scope. This is a a problem that affects inpatient length of stay uh, and is influenced by inpatient length of stay. This is a problem that is influenced and affected by uh, primary health care and the accessibility of primary health care. It's something that's influenced by executive and bed management strategies. And so I think it's important from that perspective. In terms of its kind of strengths, aside from that, it does a, a very thorough job at really critiquing some of the, the methods that these smaller publications used, particularly when it comes to ED crowding. This is a very nebulous concept. And actually, we need to nail down exactly what we're looking at. As to the weaknesses, look, there's a lot of bias here. Anything that gets published is going to innately have a bias towards findings that are positive, right? They're not going to publish uh, negative papers. And look, there's a huge amount of, of kind of potential confounders in a lot of these papers. There's extrapolations as to cause and effect. The statistical analysis was often kind of basic, nebulous, and they point that out in this review. This gives us a perspective on how wide-ranging this is. I wouldn't take any of the specific statistical evaluations from this paper as definitive. I think really we just need to appreciate that this is a huge multifaceted issue. Do you think there's a mismatch between the causes of ED crowding and the solutions being implemented? Absolutely. So I think a lot of the solutions that have been focused on tend to be intra-ED solutions, things like the NEAT target, having dispositions within four hours, things like introducing a nurse navigator role. And the causes of ED crowding, uh, as the paper points out, are really kind of unexplored. There's only 14 papers, and most of those were quite qualitative studies that really kind of documented what was actually behind ED crowding. So I think more research into the causes of ED crowding might inform better how we can actually look after REDs and the negative consequences that came with that. And I think a lot of the solutions to that actually might need to lie um, outside of ED. With ED is, is an important part of them, but you know, looking at inpatient teams, looking at primary health. And I think information on the causes of ED crowding may point to where solutions might be better utilised. I would like to ask Kit just a couple of questions. It's evident from the sort of international nature of the paper that you presented that these issues are universal, yet none of the solutions to my reading seem eminently generalisable, right? When we talk about a trial that purports a certain intervention for a given problem, the first thing we always talk about is what is the generalizability of that study's findings and how can that then apply to the local population within which I practice. From my reading of the literature, I have found that this is the constant, consistent mismatch with any paper that reviews access block. I find that the questions that it's asking are universal Every country seems to be suffering from some form of access block or overcrowding. And yet the solutions are then also purported as universal. But from my clinical experience, they're very rarely applicable in that manner. 
a solution that maybe works well in metropolitan London in the UK may or may not translate with similar efficacy to regional Australia. Now, do you think the paper addressed that sufficiently? And how do you think that impacts your ability to maybe take these points forward and implement real solutions? I think the paper did a good job at identifying the complexity um, as a whole of the issues of, of ED crowding. I don't think it did a particularly good job at identifying that actually every ED crowding problem is different. And I, I agree with what you're saying. I think there's a number of things that we need to appreciate here. One is that every patient is different, and that is every patient is different between patients themselves, you know, you get high acuity patients, low acuity patients, all with different needs, all with different complexities and medical background between patients, but also between systems. So the patients that present in Western Sydney, where I work, for instance, may be different and present with different problems and different social concerns uh, as well uh, to maybe patients in the Central Coast or in uh, Northern Sydney or Southern Sydney. And I think we also need to appreciate that every system is different. So every hospital has a different way of dealing with particular populations of patients. Every hospital has different facilities, right? Every hospital has different specialty services and so forth. And so I think really the solutions to ED crowding, whilst it's important to identify them on a general basis, I think need to be very hospital system specific and even patient-specific. One of the things that I also think we need to identify is what is this emergency phase of care? They use this a lot within this particular systematic review, but they don't really define it. And I think it is so ill-defined. You know, when does a patient stop being an emergency patient and start being a patient of an inpatient team? And I, I actually think that maybe we need to revisit the concept of targets and maybe instead of having targets that are a certain duration of time because every patient is different and every system is different maybe we need targets that are time beyond the ed phase of care whatever limits we put on that i'm glad that you brought that last point up i think that's probably for me at least part of the failings of us as a college i think for me personally having done ed training i don't really know what my job is it's not clear to me what my role is across the health service. I understand what my job is at a particular hospital because I understand my role within the system of that hospital, how that process works. In some hospitals that are smaller with less acute medical and surgical care, perhaps my job that day will be to manage musculoskeletal injuries or for a practice that is maybe not surrounded by primary care physicians who are particularly confident in managing, for example, pediatric illnesses or obstetric illnesses. Maybe that is how my practice will skew. However, that might not necessarily translate to what my job looks like at a major tertiary or quaternary trauma referral center, where often at times the same patient might be viewed as a different priority. I find that really challenging. I also don't really know what my job is. Am I someone who goes around only resuscitating? Is that, is that what I'm supposed to do? Am I the person who's in charge of undifferentiated patients? But then there are a lot, that, that makes up, at least in my experience, the vast minority of, of what I see. Um, how can that be my job if it's only a little bit of what I actually do? I think if we can better define what we're actually supposed to be doing here, and that's not something that we need to just make unilaterally. I think that's a decision that you make in conjunction with the services that you provide to the hospital that you work in. Then we can better understand what we're actually supposed to be doing for our patients. And then from there, we can extrapolate what reasonable goals would be, A, achievable, 
and B, would optimise patient care and outcomes. And that might mean in some circumstances, yes, maybe we should have an X-ray built into the ED so we can do all these fast-track X-rays nice and quickly. Or maybe we should have a midwifery or obstetric uh, sort of early pregnancy access clinic nurse sitting in our ED because that's how our presentations skew. And that's kind of what the point that I was trying to get at with the lack of generalizability of these solutions. I think this paper is very anxiety-provoking uh, but doesn't actually answer any real questions because my argument is always going to be that the role of an emergency department, this is one of the beauties of what we do, the role of the emergency department is not homogenous. It is to serve the community within which the department is built. And so if that community requires a solution, then the emergency department should be the one to step up and provide that solution. And that might mean bringing in some primary care physicians to work in the department. But I don't think we can abscond from those responsibilities and pretend that the, this issue is entirely beyond us. Yes, no beds in the hospital. That's not something we can eminently do much about. But I feel like there, there is some conversation to be had there about what our role is. At least that's my, that's my two cents on the matter. I agree. I think it's really important to identify that this is an international issue, but to work on solutions in a very system-specific, patient-specific way, um, which is really problematic, actually, you know, in, in a lot of ways. And I, I do think that maybe, you know, that that's a further limitation of this paper, not, not by virtue of any bias, but by virtue of the fact that, you know, you almost can't publish research that is specific enough for us to be able to manage the issues of ED crowding within a single center or within a single period of time. That was a really exceptional summary of an incredibly complicated paper. For me, the most important take-home point from this paper was actually the fact that they've highlighted that really there's just such a lack of research into the causes of access block and overcrowding. I, I think you're right, Promote. I think this is a very anxiety-provoking paper, but I also I wonder if this paper and a lot of the research around this so far have almost been a response to our own anxiety. I feel that going to work in, in an emergency department at the moment is an anxiety-provoking experience when you sort of see the level of congestion and crowding um, and the negative sort of consequences that we see on a daily basis. Um, you know, as a result of that, we tend to want to undertake literature to kind of express those issues. And it probably comes out in the number of fairly qualitative studies that have been included in this paper that basically describe people's experiences and opinions, which as important as they are, possibly don't give us the most rigorous understanding of why this is happening and why it's happening across such varied contexts around the world. And I think that the problem with this is that it allows this mythology to kind of proliferate as to what the problem is and what the causes of access block are. Promote alluded earlier to this idea of what is the ED patient and what is not an ED patient. And, and I actually find it a personal pet peeve of mine to say this is not an ED patient because you know they're here, they've asked for our help. I think that anyone who meets those criteria is an ED patient. There does seem to be some degree of consistency in the literature, which shows that demand management strategies trying to sort of turn people away from the ED or even sort of just reduce the number of low acuity patients don't really seem to work in terms of reducing access block and crowding and don't seem to be particularly socially acceptable either. I wonder if, Promove, you might be able to give us a little bit of insight, having a lovely wife who works as a GP, into some of the issues that are being faced by GPs at the moment in terms of providing care to their patients and perhaps the difficulties that they face, which may lead to increased demand on the hospital system. 
there is this illusion that there is a single issue that is causing the problem and Kit's paper demonstrates that beautifully, that it's not actually one thing and that it's lots of things. So just to sort of touch on the point that you said earlier about a patient being an emergency patient because they're in an emergency department, that's one of the most amazing things about what we do for work is that we are the light that is on 24-7, 365 for whatever problem. Doesn't matter what the etiology is, doesn't matter what the pathogenesis is, doesn't matter even how sick the patient is, we are eminently accessible. And that's a powerful thing. You're right, I agree with you. Any patient who walks into the ED is an ED patient. The question is really twofold. I think part of the angst comes from the fact that we perceive that the community can manage some problems and the patient doesn't necessarily need to come into the ED. Now, I guess the the argument that I would put to that is we probably are quite ignorant, just as we are of how the wards work in many ways. We are quite ignorant of how the community health setting works as well. Um, I certainly was um, hearing, sort of watching my wife go through her training and her friends go through their training, certainly hearing her talk about her days at work um, have opened my eyes. When you think about it, if an ED is surrounded by let's say, you know, in metropolitan Sydney, a modest estimation would be five to 10 general practice clinics within a 20 kilometre radius of any given emergency department. And each general practice clinic sees on average two to 300 patients a day within a 10 hour period. You can just imagine then the deferrals that are happening, you know, even if each practice refers only 0.1% or even 1% of patients, so three, three patients a day, for an ED that that flows in, and so the perception is that oh, there's a quite a significant number of people coming from those settings. But then, if you look back and take a step back and look at the numbers, it's actually a minuscule amount compared to how much is actually being seen in the community. So that's probably the first misconception that needs to be corrected. The second is that, as Kit said, each patient is an access block problem and solution in and of themselves. So some patients have problems that can be easily fixed uh, in the community. And I use the term easily with quotation marks. But then there are some with complex psych, drug and alcohol and mental health issues in whom even with a well-supported and well-funded public hospital system, as Australia's is, whatever our biases might want to make us believe, we fail these patients on a not irregular basis in REDs. It's not impossible to then imagine how the system might be further stretched without the constant governance that occurs in public hospital systems in the community where things are a little bit more ad hoc and there appears to be this medical sort of fog of war that patients can kind of disappear into and never emerge back from. And so in many ways for those patients who are oftentimes the malaligned and the ones that we are unimpressed about managing in the ED, the chronic representers, the chronic pains, the patients with recurrent mental health crises, the public health system in the community is not necessarily equipped well enough to deal with them. And so in those circumstances, we are the crutch that people lean on uh, and that's out of necessity. I put to you that it's probably easier to find a hospital-based solution for those patients than it is to find a broad strokes community-based approach because the patient's just so complicated. I mean, it's it's frustrating conversation to have because there is no answer or solution that can be widely implemented across the health system. At least that's my personal opinion. I think, and everything being qualitative, I guess, I guess that's the strongest evidence we can give. What is our personal experience and what is our personal opinion? I think trying to quantitate it we are trying to translate research method methodologies that have succeeded when we have a clearly defined problem. But we don't have a clearly defined problem here. We don't know what the cause is. We don't really even know what we mean when we say access blocks sometimes. Different hours mean different things to different people in different hospitals. And so 
I think for as long as we lack that, we will forever lack a firm statistical way to analyze the information. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. That also sort of highlighted in a lot of the solutions that were purported through this systematic review, a lot of the papers were looking at throughput. And I think that really highlights the fact that our sort of grasp on access block and crowding is a little bit loose because throughput throughput is important. ED length of stay is important, but um, throughput does not necessarily equate to access block. You can reduce throughput by seeing low acuity patients in half the time and have them discharged significantly faster and still have the exact same level of access block and overcrowding because all of the high acuity patients are still stuck in the same beds. And so you still have the same level of stress. You know, there, there is a little bit of a mismatch here and I completely agree. I think it's because we don't have a consistent defined grasp of the problem. And I think that needs to come from a higher level. Maybe as you alluded to earlier, promote the, the college needs to sort of provide a little bit of governance on that. And in fairness, there have been some position statements that have been released relatively recently by ASIM sort of discussing their perception of access block and overcrowding and providing position statements. I think even broader on a government level, as a health system more generally, we need to identify that this is a problem and it's a problem that's going to sort of progressively get worse and affect all areas of our care, whether it's, you know, time to cath lab, whether it's, you know, availability of ambulances, you know, even whether it's resultant onflows onto both our inpatient colleagues and to onto GPs, you know, because the, the quality of our care provider drops when we're in these situations. And so as a result of that, consequences flow onto other people. I wonder if maybe instead of having this divided governance system of health, perhaps if we had a centralized system of health where it was, you know, all on the state government or all on the federal government to regulate, perhaps there would be less cost shifting between primary and tertiary care. Perhaps there would be increased efficiency and we might sort of find a little bit better synergy between our systems so that the hospital system isn't being overcrowded. I'm not claiming to know much about this whole system. In fact, I'm finding this discussion very interesting because a lot of these things I have never thought about before. But coming back to what I guess Pramod and Kit were mentioning earlier about every emergency department being different and serving different populations, even within our state, I think potentially trying to find a universal strategy is not necessarily the way forward. This is probably going to sound like a really strange question, but I don't actually know what hospital-based auditing systems are in place for these kind of issues. Like, I don't know whether someone can answer this for me, but, you know, what is our data collection like regarding our issues with access block and length of stay? And in the same way we have M&M meetings for morbidity and mortality, do we have systems in place to more closely look at our issues with access block on a site-based level, because if we don't have the data, as it seems we maybe don't, then I guess the solutions will be further and further away. So to answer your question, yes, KPIs are monitored closely. KPIs to some degree direct and justify funding to a department and are actually used on a more broader scale to review performance, correctly or incorrectly so. All right, that's neither here nor there, I guess. I guess what I'd be interested in asking you, Caroline, would be, would you consider this access block? I'll give you a failure in access block. I'll give you a case. If you had a 23-year-old male present with having allegedly injected amphetamines, comes in psychotic, gets sedated in the emergency department, gets admitted, let's say under toxicology for some monitoring, wakes up, still a bit disorientated and confused, thought to be ongoing drug affected or psychotic, unclear. Mental health come, 
they're not keen on making an immediate decision. The medical services come, toxicology, they consult neurology. Neurology also not 100% clear about what's going on, but they think it's probably psychiatric. By now, it's we're talking, you know how this works. We're talking 12, 14 hours into the patient's stay. At hour 16, the patient spikes the fever. At hour 20, they test COVID positive. At hour 24, the patient becomes encephalopathic and they get intubated and they get diagnosed with meningoencephalitis or and secondary COVID illness or primary COVID illness with some sort of encephalitis. Now, that patient's length of stay, if you just take a step back and look at the numbers that we live by, has breached every parameter, was in many ways too unsafe to go to a capable ward bed and so remained in the emergency department, which was deemed to be the safest place for the patient. And then the diagnostic dilemmas meant that there was a constant workup in progress with no firm diagnosis between the various medical subspecialty teams. Now, take a step further, even further back than that, right? So what is the point of the what we're actually trying to do here? What we're actually trying to accomplish is best patient care. So did the best thing happen for that patient? Now, if you were to say at the four-hour mark to a very frustrated medical service, what would the best thing do? The answer may very well be transfer to an inpatient psych unit for ongoing assessment and management and treatment with antipsychotics. Now, that would have been quite deleterious for this patient and potentially catastrophic for the system. I don't know if that's a failure secondary to access block. I really don't. I can understand why the system isn't happy with that. I can understand why EDs want that process to change. But if we're looking at patient-orientated outcomes, which allegedly are supposed to be what we're supposed to be looking at, this patient-orientated outcome, I would say, was probably the most positive we could have hoped for. And as it's not a true story, it's just something that I made up on the spot. But I'd be interested to know what you think about that patient's care in the context of access block. I'll throw that to the group. That's a really good example of patient we'd all see at least on, you know, once in each of our shifts. I don't necessarily think there's any major issue with that. Maybe that's because of the place I guess most of us have spent working in. But I think the more we examine such cases without necessarily blaming anyone or saying that this patient should have been transferred somewhere quicker. But the more we examine these kind of cases, the more likely we are to come up with solutions that can serve the patient, whether that is having bigger emergency departments with more medical staff in the department. I know that's, you know, probably fantasizing, but, you know, like the more cases we have and the more data we have to demonstrate that actually these patients don't have a management pathway that facilitates a four-hour rule, the more likely we are to come up with specific site-specific solutions. Maybe then, you know, I would argue that instead of having this four-hour, you know, everyone fits into that umbrella approach, maybe there are a set of targets that could be used to label someone safe for finishing their ED proportion of their of their stay. Maybe that's something that can be decided by ED physicians. I, I'm aware that there are lots of problems with this as an argument, but maybe that should be, you know, when they finish their acute resuscitation, when the ED physician is happy that they've got an admitting team, when there is a su- sufficient radiology and labs to make a presumptive diagnosis, and when there's no concern about the patient becoming acutely more unwell. Um, that couldn't be managed in a normal ward. Maybe that's when the ED length of stay finishes. I, I don't know, just as a perspective. I think it's really interesting as well because I've had, well, anecdotally, some people who I've made consults to, some teams, and they would say, oh, just give it some time. We'll see if the therapies work. If they don't work, then we'll admit them. So I think that time as a diagnostic tool is also really interesting to look at from whether the patient gets 
better or worse, whether they need admission or whether they whether they don't overall. And then it's also coming back to that diagnostic factor of how far do we need to investigate this? So when the results come back in, do we need to do more scans on top of the scans that we've already done? And then it kind of snowballs from there. So it comes back to that that interesting factor in the paper, which was like the the decision-making time or the delay to decision-making. And I wasn't aware of this when I started, but uh, one of the consultants took me aside and said, do you know there's an actual metric that we can use for consults when we've consulted a team to when they actually see the patient to when they actually admit them, which was kind of new new to me, which was interesting in the fact that a lot of junior staff as well coming onto the floor with basic physician trainees and their first year out and sort of seeing these patients are then expected to make a decision or escalate to their boss. And in between that time, it'll take more time to then make a decision. So it's it's just a really interesting thing that, you know, all this time is kind of like they can't move anywhere, they can't go anywhere, but they're not getting better or worse. So what do we do with them? Um, is that something that you guys have found in your practice as like more senior registrars and consultant? I agree. Actually, I think that time is the ultimate diagnostic tool. I think that some of this uh, ends up becoming a bit of a philosophical argument even at a local level. That's probably why we see so much local differences because it kind of, just like, you know, on a governmental level, there's people who, you know, traditional right-wing people who believe in small government and there's traditional left-wing people who begin believe in big government. We kind of have the same thing on ED level. We've got people who believe in big ED. I probably, to a certain extent, believe in big ED, which involves ED having a longer, more protracted and larger oversight over people's care. It involves ED taking a broader hospital responsibility and involves people, you know, possibly, you know, a a larger department, larger areas of oversight, more responsibilities, but possibly more stress as well. But then there's other people who potentially equally validly argue against that, and they believe in small ED. They believe in very defined targets, um, very defined uh, sort of parameters around, you know, as, as Kit, you were alluding to before, you know, we've done the acute resuscitation, that's our phase done. And then after that checkpoint, the responsibility is is on the inpatient team or whoever else, you know, whatever the next step is. That really is something that seems to vary in, in people's response, you know, from, from department to department, from state to state, and even from country to country to a certain extent. I mean, we know that, for example, in the UK, they have a significantly different emergency system to the way we have. Um, Caroline, just touching on your question about the data, the Bureau of Health Information routinely collects sort of health and information data. There's a number of sort of parameters around the hospital system and emergency departments form like one of the key sort of areas of data collection. And so they release a quarterly healthcare report and they sort of look at data, including things like number of patients based on triage category who are being seen within the triage time the median length of stay in the emergency department and that sort of thing. It is fairly closely monitored. I think probably the only way to better monitor it would be if, um, you know, as we've all alluded to, if we had a stronger definition of what we're actually dealing with, then we'd have possibly better data. But um, but certainly it's something that's being monitored. Thanks, Jess. I guess I just wonder, because obviously like a median length of stay is very vague term when you think about the variability of ED presentations. I just wonder if it is going to be a hospital-based kind of adjustment, 
then like, you know, is there room for a grand rounds meeting once a week that gets the whole hospital involved in looking at specific scenarios that have happened in the emergency department and maybe what can be done to address that? I just wonder whether it's something that could become more of a hot topic within our hospitals. I think that's a great idea. And really what we need here is buy-in from all parties and, and systemic solutions. That's been highlighted by this paper and by many others. You know, we've spent so much time trying to make our emergency departments as efficient as possible. But after a certain point, that's really not going to get us any further. At the end of the day, the health system is a team system. Even though we feel like a silo, sometimes we, we don't operate as a silo. And um, if we don't have the buy-in of our other inpatient colleagues and other colleagues across the health system, then things aren't going to change. Every morning, there is a meeting that discusses what happened on the ward with the hospital directors and executives and whatnot. But as far as I know, there is no such thing that links in ED to that sort of discussion. And I think it's worthwhile being able to get a more, I guess, team-based and um, be more involved in looking after patients. I mean, yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I mean, as I said earlier, I think coordination is the key. It's just going to be about establishing those systems to do that in an effective way. I think it's really interesting as well that this notion of what Pramod was saying earlier with that particular patient, you know, is this a good thing? Is this a, is this a bad thing? It's both, you know, this is, you know, we need to remember that, that often the system that we work in is going to be indirect conflict with the patient's needs. And I think that's a really important thing to try and navigate as well. It's going to be really difficult and there's no metrics that will, that will counter for that. But sometimes the two are just going to be against each other. And where do, where do we go then? <laughs> Thanks, everyone. That was a very thought-provoking discussion. Kit, do you have a few take-home points for our listeners? This is a complex issue. That's my first take-home point that needs a system-wide approach, but that also needs focus on the fact that every system is different, every patient is different, and every patient is different within every system. My second take-home point would be that we really need to look at the causes behind this. There's a, a real paucity of research in what actually drives overcrowding in ED. And I think that if we are serious about trying to mitigate and manage this, then we really need to, to flesh out what's actually driving it. Next up, we have the interlude segment. This month, it will be presented by Promod. Thanks, Samoda. Thanks, everyone, for giving me the opportunity to do this little interlude here. I thought I'd bring something a little bit different to the table for our interlude discussion, and I'd be really interested in what the group sort of has to say about their experiences with what I'm about to talk about. So. My interlude is going to be talking a little bit about cognitive reasoning, heuristics, bias, and patient care. I'll start with how I got interested in a topic like this and the thoughts that were going through my head as a trainee. For the last 18 months of my sort of advanced training, I came across probably about a dozen or so 
really disconcerting situations in my patient interactions. I've found that for whatever reason, beyond what I could understand from my medical knowledge, I was making decisions for patients and I was making correct decisions. And I didn't really understand why. I was fluking, at least to my mind, picking up aortic dissections, picking up gangrenous limbs, picking up life-threatening injuries on a whim with no real understanding as to why I was doing what I was doing. To give you a few examples, I accidentally ordered a CT angiogram on a lady with some transient left lower limb pain, which had completely resolved and she wanted to go home. And I accidentally picked up a type A, type B aortic dissection. I find when I found these cases and I approached my mentors, I was given a pat on the shoulders and I was told that was a pretty good pickup and I was told to continue on. I found this incredibly disconcerting because for my mind, I couldn't figure out what I was doing to actually make these decisions. And the only thought that I could think of in my head was if I've picked this up one time, I've probably sent home a dozen patients with this problem because there seemingly was no rhyme or reason as to why these patients were presenting with this pathology. And as I said, I had about a dozen or so of these events, and this is what got me thinking about why I was making the decisions that I was making. And that led me down the road to better understanding heuristics and my own cognition and why I was making these decisions. I found this journey pretty fruitful and it's definitely changed me as a clinician. I'm not the same clinician that I was 12 months ago in so many ways. And I'm not the same clinician that I was 24 months ago. And it's not because I had a fellowship exam shoehorned in there somewhere. It was because I've taken the time to understand my clinical reasoning. Reading a lot around the area, and I guess a good starting point for any of those who are interested would be sort of Think Fast, Think Slow, which is a pretty famous book by a clinical psychologist and cognitive behavioral therapist on understanding our thinking processes. But for me, I'm a metaphorical person in the way I process information. And I thought I would present to you my internal metaphor of how I process information and the understandings that I've come to about how I make the decisions that I make. To get things started, I think I'll introduce you to the actual themes of the metaphor. And the way I look at it is that when we process information that, that is given to us, we look at things through a magnifying lens. And when you look at things through a magnifying lens, there are two elements. There's the lens itself, and then there's how far you need to position the lens from the information you are trying to review in order to get an optimum grip on what is correct. What we are trying to establish is we are trying to interpret pieces of information and to make that more patient specific, we are taking elements from our review of the patient history, examination, investigation. We are trying to find between those pieces of information, causational relationships, and then we are trying to then come to a conclusion or a diagnostic impression on which we then anchor our treatment and management. Now, the understanding and the processing of this information, which then ultimately informs the decision is sort of what I wanted to talk about. So the magnifying lens is essentially the lens through which we see the world and the lens through which we process the information. And it's important to not only look through the lens, but look at the lens that you look through the world. The lens can be colored by lots of bias and it's important to acknowledge that. And that was certainly a journey for me. Now, what is bias? Well, there's a lot of types of bias and the list goes on and on and on, but we are all sort of individually affected by certain types of bias. Is this patient who is now on their third representation within 24 hours drug seeking? and therefore unlikely to have a significant illness? Is this patient of a certain gender maybe more predisposed to expressing their pain or less predisposed to ex expressing their pain and therefore less or more likely to have a severe illness? These biases can lead us down the wrong path and they are the lens through which we look at our information. And so I would challenge you to not only 
understand and review the data that the patient is giving you from their history and examination, but look at how you view that information and make sure you're objective as possible. The next step that was maybe important to understand for me was how far away I position myself from the information. How close to or far away from the information did I want to stand in order to better see the picture correctly and understand these causational relationships that I was looking for? What does that mean? In any busy emergency department, you tend to fall back on pattern recognition as being the governing body behind your decision-making. This 50-year-old with classical chest pain and no cardiac risk factors requires workup X, requires bloods Y, requires discussion Z, and then disposition thereafter. This pattern recognition is useful because it allows us to make accurate and rapid decisions. And for the most part, this is what our training is about, is about recognizing causational patterns and about enacting appropriate management plans based off those patterns that we come to know. However, what perhaps is misunderstood by a lot of people, I think, and certainly what changed my clinical practice, is not trying to change the pattern to fit a pattern. Causational relationships either exist or do not exist and should not be shaped by us. And so when we look at a patient and it's not fitting a pattern, we need to take either a step closer and look at each individual piece of information to find what is salient and therefore act on that appropriately, or step further away and look at the picture as a whole and try and understand what part of the whole is either not making sense or making sense with the individual pieces of information we're provided. I think understanding and exploring these concepts is a deeply personal one, and probably my metaphor may not be necessarily applicable to you, but I challenge you with this paradigm. I think going forward in medicine, knowledge will become less and less valuable. I think what makes you a good clinician will be less and less about what you know, and more and more about how you know what you know, and how you communicate what you know. The advent of the internet and the accessibility of information means that oftentimes patients are better informed about their own illnesses than we are. But nothing can take away gestalt and nothing can take away clinical impression from us. And honing those skills um, will perhaps serve you better as a clinician going forward. Thanks. That's very inspiring. Thanks so much, Pramod. to Harry's paper by S. Brown et al. It's called Conservative versus Interventional Treatment for Spontaneous Pneumothorax. So just a quick introduction. So a primary spontaneous pneumothorax is just a condition that has an incidence of 7 to 18 per 100,000 in men and 1 to 6 per 100,000 in women. So we do see it every now and then. Obviously, they can affect patient breathing as well as having potential catastrophic effects on their hemodynamics. And in situations like these, we decompress the pneumothorax immediately. But obviously, there will be a large proportion of cases for whom the pneumothorax will not cause any instability. For these patients, there are two obvious treatment options. And one is to insert a chest strain. And the second is to just watchfully wait. There are a few guidelines that suggest one or the other, and these usually depend on the size of the pneumothorax and the patient's symptoms. But ultimately, the approach to managing a primary spontaneous pneumothorax vary between clinicians and institutions. 
Now, as clinicians, I know that we want to fix things. And I myself, we, I see something and I get anxious if I have to just simply just watch and wait. And I've definitely been culpable of too eagerly over-investigating or over-treating. But we also have to consider that the insertion of a chest tube is uh, quite painful and can have its own set of complications. Uh, in addition, once a chest tube is inserted, patients will require hospitalization and potentially surgery if the air leak continues, which in itself carries additional risks complications and costs. So the question is, what do we do? And this is a trial that tries to answer this conundrum. So Brown et al. published a multi-center, prospective, randomized, open-label, non-inferiority trial in 2020 in the New England Journal of Medicine, looking at conservative versus interventional treatment for primary spontaneous pneumothorax. They hypothesized that conservative management could be an effective and acceptable therapeutic option. Uh, with a similar percentage of patients full lung re-expansion within eight weeks as compared to interventional management. So the patients that they looked at was a group of patients between 14 to 50 years of age with a primary spontaneous pneumothorax at first episode on that lung with 32% or more on chest radiography according to the Collins method, which essentially equates to three interpleural distances when added up being greater than six centimeters. And the interpleural distances are just the apical distance, the midpoint of the upper half of the lung, and the midpoint of the lower half of the lung. All participants received conservative management as well, including analgesia and oxygen. The SpO2 fell a bit below 92. Few exclusion criteria as well, previous spontaneous pneumothorax, secondary or bilateral pneumothorax, coexistent hemothorax, tension, pregnancies, or social circumstances. The groups were randomized into two groups. The interventional group had a small chest tube tall French or smaller, inserted and attached to an underwater seal without suction. One hour later, a chest x-ray was done. If the lung had re-expanded and the drain no longer bubbled, the drain was closed. And four hours later, if the patient's condition was stable and another repeat x-ray showed that the pneumothorax had not reoccurred, the drain was removed and the patient discharged. If the initial drain insertion did not result in radiographic resolution or if the pneumothorax recurred, the underwater seal drainage was recommenced and the patient was admitted to the hospital. In the conservative management group, patients were observed for a minimum four hours for a repeat chest x-ray. If the patient did not receive any supplementary oxygen and were walking comfortably, they were discharged with analgesia and written instructions. However, some of these conservative management group patients needed to go intervention. That's if the pain was uncontrollable or the patient deteriorated. All the patients had an in-person assessment between 24 to 72 hours after randomization. And again, at two, four, and eight-week follow-up visits, the visits included a x-ray if the pneumothorax had not completely resolved in the previous x-ray, and a questionnaire regarding symptoms, analgesia, and patient satisfaction. Pneumothorax recurrence was also assessed six and 12 months later by phone calls. Now, the primary outcome was a complete radiographic resolution determined by the treating physician within eight weeks after randomization. The goal was to test for non-inferiority of a conservative management group, and a committee of respiratory and emergency physicians reasoned that a 90% success rate in the conservative management group compared to an anticipated 99% success rate in the intervention group after eight weeks should be acceptable. 
I'm also going to mention here that the study design did not initially specify the window for the eight-week visit, nor define how missing radiographic data were to be handled for the primary outcome. And these issues were only recognized post-hoc. What they did do during data analysis was that the data on the patients in whom the eight-week visit occurred after 56 days were treated as missing unless a later x-ray showed a persisting pneumothorax, thereby confirming failure. They also decided to run two sensitivity analyses after that. In one analysis, the eight-week window was extended to 63 days. And in another analysis, data on patients whom the eight-week visit occurred after 56 days were imputed as failure. They also looked at multiple secondary outcomes, including time for complete resolution of symptoms, recurrence, adverse events, as well as length of hospital stay, invasive procedures, radiographic investigations, number of days of work, persistent air leak, and patient satisfaction. They also looked at complete lung re-expansion within eight weeks as reviewed by two radiologists who were blinded to the trial group assignments. In terms of the results, about half were allocated to the interventional group, and 10 out of the 154 patients declined intervention. And the other half who were allocated to, to the conservative group, 25 out of those 162 required intervention for various reasons. In the complete case analysis, that is, if the eight-week visit occurred after 56 days and the data was treated as missing, 98.5% in the intervention group had resolution within eight weeks as compared to 94.4% in the conservative management group, which was within non-inferiority margin and the conservative management option was deemed non-inferior to intervention. In the subsequent sensitivity analysis, non-inferiority for resolution was maintained when that eight-week visit was extended to 63 days, 98.5% in the intervention group compared to 94.9% in the conservative management group had resolution. However, the interesting part is that when the missing data after 56 days were imputed as failure, non-inferiority was not maintained with a risk difference of minus 11, uh, which falls outside the non-inferiority margin of minus 9. Secondary outcomes show that interventional management was associated with more complications, as you can imagine. This group of patients were more likely to have adverse events, more radiation in the form of x-rays and CTs, more recurrences, surgeries, hospital revisits, increased length of hospital stays, as well as days off work. Patients in the intervention group also reported significantly lower satisfaction scores compared to their counterparts, which is understandable given that they had a big tube shoved into their chest. On the other hand, the interventional group had short median time to radiographic resolution, 16 versus 30 days, and percentage of patients with complete resolution of symptoms and median time taken until symptom resolution did not differ significantly between two groups. When assessing for complete lung re-expansion by the two radiologists who were blinded to the trial group assignments, interestingly, radiologists were more likely than treating clinicians to assess those x-rays as not showing resolution. They also reported slightly lower rates of resolution in the interventional group compared to the conservative management group. What this study shows is provide some modest uh, but statistically fragile evidence that conservative management was typically non-inferior to interventional management for radiographic resolution within eight weeks. In addition, conservative management spared 85% of the patients from an invasive intervention and resulted in fewer hospitalization days, a lower likelihood of prolonged chest tube drainage, less need for surgery, and fewer adverse events than interventional management.
The percentage of patients with early pneumothorax recurrence was also lower in the conservative management. That was an interesting study. I feel like it probably changed practice for a number of people in emergency medicine. And I find that they wrote their conclusion with a lot of modesty and insight. Could you please remind us what the exclusion criteria for this study was? So there were uh, previous primary spontaneous pneumothorax on the same side, secondary or bilateral pneumothorax, a coexistent hemothorax, attention pneumothorax, pregnancy, social circumstances, preventing uh, safe discharge or planned air travel within 12 weeks. Thanks for that. And what do you think are some of the strengths and limitations of this paper? Yep, so it's a multi-center trial involving multiple different centers with varying degrees of clinicians and patients and expertise. It's a prospective trial. It is randomized. However, it definitely has some uh, limitations. The first of which being that it wasn't properly blinded by the nature of its treatment modalities. So the treating physician as well as the patients were not blind to the study. And there is suggestion that the lack of blinding may have had an effect on the results, given that the radiologists reported different rates of re-expansion compared to the treating clinician. Another limitation was that upon the initial design of the study, uh, it failed to define the window for the eight-week visit and how the missing radiographic data were to be handled for the primary outcome. And we saw that when we treated the data that did not occur after 56 days as missing, there was non-inferiority in the conservative management group. However, if that data were treated as treatment failures, the conservative management group fell outside the margin of accepted inferiority. Also, conservative management group was associated fewer recurrences. Although there were mostly small pneumothoraxes that would not be clinically significant, the authors also suggest that this may have been due to an ongoing slow leak despite initial reinflation, or maybe due to a rapid re-expansion of the lung, and hence you get some visceral pleural wound with physical impairment in healing. But I would also argue that this can also be kind of classified as an adverse event associated with the intervention. Pramod, what do you think of this paper and how would this paper change your management? It's a good study on a reasonably difficult topic in a very challenging environment. Performing any kind of randomized interventional study in an emergency setting with acute pathologies is always going to be challenging. I found the concept of non-inferiority an interesting way to approach this clinical question. And to answer the last part of what you asked, it already has. I've, I mean, I've been guided towards management of small to moderate pneumothoraces already conservatively and on occasion with the guidance of other ED physicians when I was a registrar, I was managing spontaneous large pneumothoraces that were minimally symptomatic as well in a similar fashion. But it's nice to have the evidence to show that we aren't at least doing harm. In terms of what was pointed out as to this concept of non-inferiority and whether we're happy with that, it'd be interesting to know sort of going forward uh, if there's any sort of further prospective validation of some of this data. And it would be interesting to see what the community does with that. But for now, I think it, it provides a, a good firm grounding to sort of extend our non-interventional management, which I guess is becoming more and more of the norm for some of these illnesses, which is nice to see, because I think even patients would prefer that we do less if it means that the outcomes are no worse. I noted that there was crossover between the two groups. So 15.4% of the conservative management group actually ended up getting a chest drain, while 6.5% of the intervention group was actually treated conservatively. Did they provide any particular reason for this? 
the patients in the intervention group who underwent conservative management, the reason was that they declined. And the patients who were in the conservative management group, 25 of which required intervention, eight of those patients had abnormal physiological observations during the period of observation. Another eight had intolerable symptoms. Three had difficulty mobilizing. Three had increasing size of the pneumothorax on the repeat x-ray. Two had a hemothorax. Two was due to patient anxiety. And one was slow resolution. And there may have been more than one reason for why they underwent intervention. I thought this was a fascinating paper. I was interested in how they set the non-inferiority threshold. I think the, the most interesting thing from this paper was demonstrable lack of harm from not intervening. And possibly the only weakness there is the, the fact that there was significant loss to follow up in both groups and more substantially in the conservative management group. And, you know, partially because of this unfortunate situation in terms of how they've defined their eight-week follow-up thresholds. But certainly they, you know, they contact the patients at six to 12 months to check on them as well. And it seems fairly consistently that both in terms of general adverse events and in terms of more clinically serious adverse events, patients who had the intervention did worse, sometimes significantly so. You know, based on that argument, you can't ungive someone a chest drain. You can always give someone a chest drain, but you can't ungive someone a chest drain. So even if you took the sensitivity analysis um, from this paper and, you know, we, we accepted the worst case scenario, we said that every single patient who was lost to follow-up ended up having incomplete resolution. That still leaves us, I think it was about 85% of patients having adequate resolution of their pneumothorax without any sort of intervention. And I know that that didn't meet their predefined non-inferiority threshold, which in fairness was probably a somewhat arbitrary number to begin with. But for me, if I had pneumothorax and you told me that there's an 80% chance of me getting better without anyone doing anything, and I'd be able to avoid someone punching a hole in my chest and avoid the risk of having infection, chronic pain, you know, bleeding and other complications, I would take it with two hands. As long as we're sensible about this, I think that overall, it's very likely to lead to better outcomes for our patients. The one caveat being, and, and they sort of articulated this in the exclusion criteria, the importance of understanding the social sort of context and just broader patient context. If a patient is homeless, they're going to have a lot more difficulty in having, you know, appropriate follow-up, appropriate symptom monitoring and, and appropriate representing if they were to be conservatively managed. Not to say that you can't conservatively manage them, but then perhaps rather than just discharging them home with their large pneumothorax, perhaps you'd be more inclined to keep them in hospital and watch them and serially observe them to make sure that things are going the right way. Similarly, making sure that someone isn't going to get on a plane or goes to scuba diving or something like that with their large pneumothorax before you decide to not, not drain it. But broadly, I, I thought this was you know, a fascinating paper and really well done. It is all about how we phrase the conversations we have with our patients. That's probably the, one of the most powerful things that this paper gives you. It gives you a firm evidence-based justification to tell someone now that there is reasonably strong evidence that if we do nothing for your pneumothorax in a certain population subset, we will in fact, A, not, not be doing any harm by doing nothing, um, and B, giving you equipotent treatment. And, and I think that's a strong, that's a strong statement to, to have come out of a research paper. And I think that's the reason why this paper has sort of garnered so much attention, um, because it aids in that conversation. I noticed in the paper that the patients who had the chest strain intervention were then more likely to then 
proceed to having surgical intervention as well in terms of VATS procedures to you know prevent future pneumothorax. And then also just in terms of the application of this in primary versus say secondary pneumothoraces, I was wondering you know, what your understanding is of the difference in etiology and, you know, pathogenesis in terms of the primary versus secondary and why this is potentially not applicable. And then also, you know, what, what the indications for surgery are and why it is you think that the patients who, you know, were getting the chest strains were then more likely to proceed to surgical intervention. Amazing. I'll revisit my primary exam stuff now. So, I mean, when you're talking about primary and secondary pneumothoraxes, you're ultimately, you're trying to ascertain the presence or absence of underlying lung disease, generally. Underlying structural issues. Now, that could be secondary to destructive airways disease, such as, you know, our emphysematous patients who have large bullar that, that rupture. And obviously, the other more common form of sort of secondary pneumothoraces that, you know, are controversial to manage conservatively, depending on their size, would be the traumatic ones as well, you know, a large traumatic pneumothorax. Uh, the data is just not necessarily there at, the, at this time to support that. In terms of the pathogenesis there, what you're dealing with is an structural deficit in the in the ability of the lung to a deal with the sudden and precipitous loss of functional capacity so someone who has very minimal surface alveolar surface area to to facilitate gas exchange if you if you delete 30 percent of their of their lung capacity um then you're going to significantly impact the ability for them to remain asymptomatic and therefore you would preclude conservative management in those patients. Uh, and similarly, if you have, for example, a pleural tear or underlying pulmonary trauma that may or may not affect the ability for the lung to completely and efficaciously heal without A, increasing the risk of recurrence or B, permanently sort of damaging lung function. And I think that's the reason why those two population subgroups trend towards being managed with a drain or surgery. Now, which patients get surgical intervention and which patients get a drain and a monitored? It's hard to say on initial presentation. There are some subset of patients with who have, for example, had previous pleurodeces that have then and then have gone on to have a subsequent pneumothorax. Though they tend to do more poorly with with drain insertions. Patients with a significant underlying lung disease also tend to do more poorly. And then you've got your subset populations who are, for example, pilots, scuba divers, and stuff. And that's a sort of a special population group that oftentimes needs. Um, surgical intervention. Does that kind of answer your question, Shreyas? Yeah, it does. Thank you. Yeah, I, I was interested to see the discrepancy between the two groups. I was wondering whether there's anything sort of specific about the action of having inserted a drain to begin with that might make someone more sort of liable to need surgical intervention or whether this was just a chance effect. Also, you know, well, there was one failure of randomization in, in the paper in which there was just, you know, by happenstance, more more significant proportion of smokers in the intervention group. And I wonder if that contributed to the larger need for um, surgical intervention as well. Yeah, that definitely could have played a factor. Any take-on points for our listeners, Harry? My main take-on point is I'm sure we are all tempted to rush in to treat or intervene when we see something that looks bad. But with this paper, there is evidence to suggest that conservative management is not any worse um, in treating a pneumothorax in this subset of patients. And considering that conservative management also spares many of these patients from invasive interventions, um, as well as days in hospital and days of work, there is a a lot going on for deciding to treat patients in a conservative manner than rushing into any interventions. 
Now we have a new epic segment lined up for you on our podcast. It's called Stats with Shares. Each month we'll present an important statistical pearl and this month it will be on p-values and why they can be so controversial. This is Stats with Shreyas. We're a trainee-based journal club, and so I thought that it would be a useful exercise to have a bit of a discussion about basic statistical terms. The idea was that we could try and get both ourselves, but also our audience up to speed on some various statistical fundamental concepts, and that might enhance our understanding of the research that we're evaluating and help us sort of develop some of those critical appraisal skills. So each month we'll be providing an overview of a different statistical concept and hopefully you guys will find it useful and informative. We'll try not to be too waffly. As always, bear in mind that none of us are epidemiology experts. So if you are one and you happen to spot an error or have any feedback or comments, please let us know. And to start things off, I thought, what else screams epidemiology more than p-values? So that's where we're going to start. If we're going to talk about p-values, the first thing to understand is the concept of random error. So you'll have noticed in previous episodes that we spend a lot of time when we're talking about research methodology, talking about the research or sample population. And in particular, we tend to look at whether the sample population is a representative sample of the target or whether there could be any biases or confounders from the way that the sample has been constructed. What we don't tend to discuss nearly as often is the random variation of results that can occur between different sample populations. And that's regardless of whether there's bias or whether there's confounding or whether they've done the perfect sampling and it's a very well-representative sample. Unfortunately, we're rarely able to perform a study on an entire population. And so what we aim to do when we perform a study is to find a sample of the population that we hope will be representative of the larger study base that we're hoping to apply the findings to. But even if we do a great job of this, just because of pure individual variability, every sample that we take from the larger population is going to have a slightly different measurement or, or result. And that is essentially what's called random error. This then raises the question of whether the association that we're observing in our sample population is a genuine association or simply just a matter of chance and random error. That's where hypothesis testing comes in. So anytime we design a study, that tests the relationship between an exposure and an outcome, we essentially work against something called the null hypothesis, which is the, the test hypothesis that says that there is no relationship between the two. Working against the null hypothesis, the study could have four potential outcomes. The study could correctly find out that there's no association. The study could incorrectly find an association or reject the null when there isn't one, and that's called type one error. The study could incorrectly report no association when, in fact, there is an association. That's called type 2 error. And the study could correctly identify an association. So statistical significance is essentially a quantification of the likelihood that an observed association is due to chance. In other words, it's the likelihood of type 1 error. That's where p-values comes in. So the p-value or probability value is a probability test that assesses the statistical significance of an association, or again, the likelihood that the observed association is because of chance. So in other words, a p-value of 0.01 means that there's a 1% likelihood that the observed association is just due to random chance. It's important to bear in mind, though, that the p-value only comments on the probability of the result occurring as a result of chance. It doesn't comment on the validity of the result in terms of other issues such as bias or confounding. Now, here's where we get into trouble, because 
we've gotten used to dichotomizing p-values in medicine using this cutoff of 0.05, essentially saying that there's a 5% chance of random error, uh, no, type one error. And that's the level that we're willing to accept. Why do some people have a problem with that? Well, where did this number come from? Essentially, 0.05 is an arbitrary threshold that some guy called Fisher established in the 1950s and has been pervading our thinking ever since. The problem with dichotomizing based on 0.05 is that we're essentially deciding that a 4% chance of type 1 error is fine and the association is valid, but a 6% chance of type 1 error is not acceptable. So as a result, we discard research findings even when there's a 94% likelihood that the null hypothesis can be rejected. And that could be a big problem depending on the clinical impact of the result. It also means that we're lumping together a result that has a 94% chance of avoiding type 1 error with a result that has a 50% chance of doing it because both of them fall into this not statistically significant threshold, even though one of these results is actually much more statistically valid than the other. Because of these issues, there are some epidemiologists who are advocating that we drop this arbitrary cutoff for statistical significance, and some even say that we should stop reporting p-values altogether. Now, where do we go from here? I'm not an expert, but my personal opinion is that dumping p-values entirely feels like throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Instead, I think that we should consider the clinical significance of the results to determine the level of risk we're willing to accept that the result is not a true finding. You know, if the study is looking at whether paracetamol effectively lowers pain, then I think, forget 0.05, I think even a p-value of 0.1 or 90% chance of a valid association would be adequate. However, if the study is looking at whether a highly toxic drug could cure a severe disease, then I personally would want to have a much higher threshold than 5% before potentially exposing my patients to a toxicity just for what could be a chance finding. Now, there is, of course, another way. We could also look at the other test of statistical significance that gives us more information, the confidence interval. But that's a whole different and more complicated ballgame, and we'll be talking about that in a future month. Thanks, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that. Lastly, we have Caroline, who will present a paper by Jeffrey Perry et al., and it's called Prospective Implementation of the Ottawa Subarachnoid Hemorrhage Rule and Six-Hour Computed Tomography Rule. Caroline? The study I will be looking at today is the Prospective Implementation of the Ottawa Subarachnoid Hemorrhage Rule and the Six-Hour Computed Tomography Rule by Perry et al., and this was published in 2020. Now, this implementation study is actually a follow-on from several other studies published by Perry et al. from 2010 onwards, and they actually first established the clinical tools which are utilized in this paper. So this has got a lot of history to it, actually, and reading around it, I also found incredibly useful. Before I dive right into the paper, though, I thought I would first provide some context for this. For several of my colleagues that may be in the audience, you might recall me on several occasions earlier this year lamenting over the need for a lumbar puncture in a patient presenting with a severe thunderclap headache or discussing at length the utility of a CT angiogram for the same patient with a radiology registrar approving our scans. For me, this has been a clinical scenario for which I have seen significant variability in practice between different colleagues and which seems to rely quite heavily on clinical judgment, which is something that as a junior registrar, I think can be very daunting. I don't want to miss the sentinel bleed in a patient that may subsequently suffer far greater morbidity and mortality than they otherwise would have. But at the same time, I don't want to make my patients wait around in a noisy, bustling ED with their severe headache, waiting for a procedure that may leave them with another cause for headache and may still leave us scratching our heads about their presentation. 
For a while earlier this year, it seemed that CT angiogram was the holy grail in my mind, picking patients with aneurysms and thus narrowing the field of those with possible aneurysmal bleed. However, it turns out that the detection of incidental aneurysms in itself can lead to significant morbidity and mortality by virtue of the risks involved with treating these newfound lesions. Neurosurgery, after all, is not a risk-free endeavour. Whilst this paper does not necessarily address all my myriad of thoughts, it has provided me with some well-needed perspective into this topic, and I hope it might do the same for some of you listeners too. So the Perry et al. group, like I said before, developed two evidence-based decision rules to help apply to alert and neurologically intact patients presenting with acute headache in order to help guide ongoing investigation. The first of these is the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule, which suggests that patients require investigation if one or more of the following is present. One, symptoms of neck pain or stiffness. Two, age greater than 40 years old. Three, witnessed loss of consciousness. Four, onset during exertion. Five, thunderclap headache with peak intensity immediately. And six, limited neck flexion on exam. The fine print advises that this rule is used only for patients greater than 15 years old with new severe non-traumatic headache, reaching maximum intensity within one hour. It also states that this is not for patients with new neurological deficits, previous aneurysms or subarachnoid hemorrhage, brain tumours, or a history of similar headaches with more than or equal to three episodes over the last six or more months. Really, this tool is one to help you identify those patients which do not require a CT. So it's more of a rule out rather than a rule in tool. The second rule they talk about is the six hour CT rule, which suggests a negative CT when read by a neuroradiologist within six hours of the onset of headache can eliminate the need for LP due to its excellent sensitivity. So back to the paper. The goal of this study was to determine the impact of the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule and the six hour CT rule when fully implemented versus current practice. More specifically, it looked at the impact of these rules on the testing rates for CT, LP and CTA and the ED length of stay. In addition, it sought to validate the accuracy of the six hour CT rule for identifying patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage when applied prospectively to a new cohort of patients. The design of this study, so it was a prospective multi-center before and after controlled study. It involved two consecutive study periods, a control period from 2010 to 2013, and an intervention period that followed between 2013 and 2016. It was conducted across five urban Canadian tertiary care teaching hospitals, initially six enrolled, but one dropped out due to a high department clinical pressure. So only five studies in the end were included. In the control phase, there was no change in patient management. Physicians were instructed not to use the decision rules as a basis for patient care. The decision to perform LP, CT or CTA were up to the treating doctor. However, they did fill out data collection forms on all the patients they were seeing that fit these criteria. In the intervention phase, physicians were actively encouraged to use the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule and the six hour CT rule, but were still able to override the proposed rules if they felt it was required. In order to prepare physicians for this, they were given a one hour group presentation, targeted individual training and additional education initiatives, including lectures, posters and pocket cards to help prompt them. 
In addition, there was a process of care modification with a change in CT ordering with physicians required to check off individual components of the rules or the reasons they were going to override the rules before CT request was processed. The population used was consecutive patients presenting with a non-traumatic acute headache or syncope with associated headache. And they were enrolled into the study as long as they were greater than 16 years old, had a GCS of 15 and were alert and orientated and were presenting within 14 days of their headache onset with the intensity of that headache reaching maximal intensity with one, within one hour. As mentioned in the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule, patients were excluded if they had had three or more previous episodes of similar headaches over a greater than six month period, if they'd had a confirmed subarachnoid hemorrhage prior to arrival in ED, were previously investigated with CT or LP for the same headache, had papilledema, new focal neurological deficit, previous diagnosis of intracranial hemorrhage or subarachnoid hemorrhage, a known brain neoplasm, cerebroventricular shunt, or headache within 72 hours following an LP. Their criteria for determining a subarachnoid hemorrhage was subarachnoid blood on the CT, xanthochromia in CSF, or red blood cell count of greater than one times 10 to the power of six in the final tube of CSF with an aneurysm identified at CTA or MRA. The reporting neuroradiologists and lab technicians reporting the xanthochromia were unaware of the study. Now, for patients who didn't end up getting a CT or had a CT with no LP or had an LP with greater than one times 10 to the six red blood cell count in the final CSF tube, to establish whether these patients ended up having subarachnoid hemorrhage later, they scouted the electronic health records, which they reviewed at six months and at the end of the study in every hospital that had neurosurgical capacity in the same city as the index ED visit. So that's how they kind of, I guess, made sure that they hadn't missed patients that had left the department without additional investigations. So on to the results. So 3,672 patients with acute headache were enrolled. 1,743 were in the control phase. 100 of which ended up having subarachnoid hemorrhage, and 1,929 were in the intervention phase, and 88 of these ended up having subarachnoid hemorrhage. The characteristics of the patients between the two phases were quite similar, and the rates of CT use actually remained constant between the two groups. So that's non-contrast CT brains. So it was 88% in the control group and 87.5% in the intervention group. The LP rate decreased from 38.9% in the control group to 25.9% in the intervention group, and that was statistically significant. Strangely, the CTA rate increased from 18.8% to 21.7%, and this was also statistically significant. But overall, the rate of additional testing beyond the non-contrast CT decreased from 51.3% in the control group to 42.2% in the intervention group. The admission rates also declined from 9.8% in the control to 7.4% in the intervention, and the emergency length of stay time was actually unchanged. Physicians followed the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rules in 77.5% of the control patients and 85.6% of the intervention patients. So, I mean, even prior to added education and their encouragement to use these rules, it's, they, it's interesting to see that they are actually following them.
and they concluded that the sensitivity of the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule was down to be 100%. So there were 444 people that didn't meet criteria for a CT according to the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule overall in this paper out of the 3,672 people and none of them ended up having a subarachnoid hemorrhage based on their follow-up strategy. Looking more closely at the six-hour CT rule, 1,204 patients overall had CT within six hours of the onset of their headache. 530 of these were in the control group and 674 were in the intervention group. In the intervention group, these patients that had the negative CT within six hours of headache onset had an absolute decrease in additional testing of 14.8%, which I thought was quite impressive. This was also coupled with an adherence to the six-hour CT rule, which went from 60.7% in the control group to 85.5% in the intervention group. So overall, the sensitivity of the six-hour CT rule for this study was deemed to be 95.5% for picking up subarachnoid hemorrhage. The five that they missed with early CT, I'll just quickly go through. So two of them were were actually unruptured aneurysms on CTA with a presumed traumatic LP. So based on the criteria set by the study for defining a subarachnoid hemorrhage, these patients technically meet that criteria. However, when actually on intervention, they were found to not actually have a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So, I mean, it's a bit difficult how you interpret those two in a way, but they're not actually subarachnoid hemorrhages. The other one was missed by a radiologist on initial interpretation. One was a dural vein fistula. And one was a severely anemic patient with a hemoglobin of 63, which is known to alter the sensitivity of a non-contrast CT brain because the density of the blood is less. So um, that's another caveat, I guess, to this rule. So overall, this paper says that it has actually validated its Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule and six-hour CT rule. And they feel that these rules are ready to be used to help decrease the use of additional investigations. Of note, absolute reduction of LPs in this study was 13%. Thanks, Caroline. I feel like diagnosing a subarachnoid hemorrhage in patients who are alert and have an unremarkable neurological exam is quite challenging, and the way people approach it can be very diverse. I feel this article had very important learning points. Going back to the methodology, what do you think are some of the strengths and limitations of the study? Starting first with the limitations, I think the way this study was conducted with first the control and then the intervention over the second three years doesn't really consider the changes over time with approach to subarachnoid hemorrhage investigation, which may have influenced these results. Perhaps, I'm not saying this was definitely the case, but perhaps there were less LPs in the intervention phase because there was more of a sway towards CTAs at that time in emergency practice. And I guess it also doesn't really consider the temporal trends that may have been at play in the ED, such as bed block, which may explain why the length of stay remained unchanged despite less subsequent testing in the intervention population. I think it's also important to point out the need for neuroradiologists to report CT scans in the six-hour CT rule. I think this is probably not reflective of most ED practice. I don't know if we at Westmead have access to a neuroradiologist, but they were actually distinguishing neuroradiologists from general radiologists in this study. And I think that's a significant limitation that may reduce the sensitivity of that rule. They talk about the physicians, even in the control setting, having to fill out forms to kind of aid in a collecting data for the patients they saw during that time period. And I wonder if the filling out of those forms actually prompted physicians to consider the rules like the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rules without 
cognitively knowing they were doing so and that may have attenuated the differences between these two groups. Lastly, I think it's important to consider that it's very rare that we see a patient with a severe headache in ED where the only differential on our mind is a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So for patients who are coming in with severe headache, we're probably considering meningitis or a venous sinus thrombosis or something else. And that will definitely play into the investigations we end up doing for our patients. So they're just some of the things that I thought possibly would limit our application of these rules into our clinical practice. And from a strengths point of view, I think the good things about this study is that it was a prospective study, which is obviously better than a retrospective study. It had reasonable patient numbers and it used tools that have previously been validated in other Perry et al. and other studies looking at these rules. So this isn't the first study looking at how valid these tools are. Just a couple of extra thoughts on the methodology. Caroline, you probably had a much closer read of this paper than I did, and so I'll be interested in what you think about this. I have a strong suspicion of a degree of selection bias in the intervention group. It was interesting to see that the control group, they recruited for three and a half years. For a proportion of that time, they had six hospitals as well instead of five, and they came up with 1,800 patients, out of which about 100 had subarachs. In the intervention group, or rather the intervention time period, they had five hospitals recruiting for two and a half years. And yet somehow they managed to recruit over 1900 patients who met the inclusion criteria. And interestingly, despite having a, you know, a larger cohort, they had a lower incidence of subarachnoid hemorrhage. They, they only had less than 90 subarachnoids. I have a feeling, and you know, in an unblinded study methodology like this, there's always this vulnerability that when the intervention phase came along, they, they mentioned in the, in the methodology section that part of the recruitment for the study was a trial person monitoring the census for the emergency department for the previous day and retrospectively selecting out people to include in the study who they felt may, met the case definition. Objectively, it doesn't necessarily come across in these sort of case characteristics, although there were some discrepancies, potentially, you know, things that objectively, if anything, sound slightly more concerning, things like um, higher incidence of neck stiffness symptoms, higher incidence of thunderclap headache in the, the intervention group. However, I guess the one thing that I observed was that there was probably more of the subjective characteristics were increased in the intervention group versus the control group, as opposed to more objective things such as, you know, whether they were vomiting or not. And it seemed to come out in the data. Ultimately, despite having a larger cohort, they had a less incidence of, of subarachnoid hemorrhage. They also, looking through the sort of other results, they seemed to have a bit more dilution in the diagnosis. So there was more benign headaches, but there was also more sort of random inclusions like, uh, you know, slightly higher incidence of, of TIA or ischemic stroke, slightly uh, higher incidence of syncope as a final diagnosis. I think that there's probably during the intervention phase, the study person who was recruiting people retrospectively was probably a little bit more enthusiastic to try and pull more numbers into the study to, you know, have a better sample. And that probably led to a little bit of selection bias that altered the way we look at it. Why is that important? I think that's important because they've reported that the rate of CT brain didn't change between the two phases. But I think that's slightly misleading because if on the one hand, you've done 88% of CT brains across 1800 patients in three and a half years, and on the other hand, you've done 88% of 
CT brains on 1900 patients in two and a half years, ultimately, you're going to have done a whole lot more CT brain. And I think that that's part of the issue with applying this Ottawa criteria. Most of the parts of the Ottawa criteria seem to seem to be, you know, pretty valid, possibly the one weakest, um, you know, out of the group being the subjective neck discomfort. And I wonder how the specificity would change if they omitted that from the rule and the sensitivity would change. While the sensitivity of the rule is great at 100%, the specificity of the rule was only 12%. And so I just, I'd be really concerned about using that as a screening tool for all headaches that are coming in through the emergency department, because I have a feeling that we're going to end up doing a whole lot more CT brains. And notably, there was no statistics during the control period to say whether clinical gestalt or, you know, just usual practice actually missed any subaracs and whether what the sensitivity was of usual care. Caroline, what, what do you think about that element of it when, when you had, did your read of the paper? So I think that's a really good thing to have picked. I mean, I think it's really hard to say whether it was that they became more enthusiastic with their recruiting through the intervention phase or whether there were other factors at play for that slight discrepancy in the groups. Again, I think that's coming back to the point of it being temporal with the control followed by the intervention. I, I I mean, I'm not exactly sure how they could have done that differently, but I think it would have been nice to get a sample of patients at the same time implementing the rules and not implementing the rules. So I think that's a really good point. Just looking more closely at the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule itself, I think a bit like the risk with D-dimer, I think this is a, a tool that I agree with you, actually has the propensity to increase the number of people we scan rather than minimise the number of people we scan. And I think I, when I was talking about it initially, I mentioned that I think it really needs to be a rule out tool rather than a rule in tool. So for someone where you've got a pretest probability, you know, where you're thinking, does this person have a subarachnoid hemorrhage? I think I want to order them a CT. Let's go through the rule to make sure that that's a good idea. Then sure, maybe this would be useful in eliminating the odd patient from the scan. But I think if we take the approach of applying this rule to every patient that comes in with a headache, we'll run into problems very quickly. And I think reading the fine print of this rule, where it actually does talk about the time at which it takes for the headache to develop and all the other exclusion criteria are critical in terms of applying this rule correctly. Whether they scanned more people in the intervention group for that reason or another reason, again, I, I don't think we can comment, but I do agree that it's an important thing to think about. There's some really good reflections on subarachnoid hemorrhage and investigations just on the internet. And looking at some other people break down previous studies was quite interesting. There was one study that suggested that the Ottawa subarachnoid rule really only applies to about 5% of people who come in where you're considering subarachnoid hemorrhage. I don't know whether that's because the age greater than 40 years is quite limiting. It, it you know, kind of reminds me of the PERC rule where it's really, really helpful for the patients that you probably, if you were using your common sense, wouldn't need to think about PE in any way. And I do wonder you know, how much clinical utility there is to this rule rather than, like we say, just clinical gestalt. The authors in this paper sort of fairly explicitly talk about wanting to avoid missing the sentinel bleed. They talk about the fact that our current usual care is missing, you know, some small frequency of, of these sentinel bleeds. These patients are otherwise healthy, relatively young, and people who end up having devastating outcomes because we've missed that. And so as a result, they're kind of advocating that we use these rules as 
a baseline for you know every single patient who's coming in with a headache. We use we use the Ottawa rule. We use the CT brain um, when we need to, and then as a result of that, potentially avoid the LP and maybe the CTA. My personal approach is that I don't know that I agree with that. I think that you know ultimately sentinel bleed and subarachnoid hemorrhage isn't a very rare event, and so if we if we're going to be using these rules, you know, for every patient that comes into the door for one of the most common. Uh, presenting symptoms to the emergency department, then I wonder if we're going to end up causing more harm than good. I see what you're saying, but I think for me, the biggest takeaway from this paper was more the impact of the six-hour CT rule rather than the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule. And I think when you're looking at all your harm versus benefit and everything else, I'm not saying that we should CT every patient that comes in with a headache, but at least to my interpretation, the way the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule was used in this paper was really to determine who needed the non-con and who who didn't. And then once you got past the non-con CT, you move on to a second rule where you're delineating who needs the LP or the CTA and where you can draw the line. And I think that's where I found the most benefit in this paper was looking more closely at the six-hour CT rule. I know that it itself is not without its flaws. And obviously the sensitivity that they report, I don't think is applicable to the general emergency department where we don't have you know, a neuroradiologist on call 24 hours to interpret these studies. But I thought like, if you look more into the data, it's really interesting to think about like your post non-con CT probability of a subarachnoid hemorrhage and comparing that with the statistics you get from LPs. So if you'll indulge me for a second, some data that eventuates from this is that in patients with a true thunderclap headache presenting within six hours, the risk of them having a subarachnoid hemorrhage or the, the incidence is thought to be between 7 and 10% for people coming into emergency. They're saying that the negative likelihood ratio of a CT within six hours is 0.01. So the, the likelihood of them you know, having the subarachnoid um, is 0.2%. So if they've had a non-con CT, which according to their rule is negative, then the chance of them having the subarachnoid hemorrhage is 0.2%. Then they remark that considering that a traumatic tap in an LP, we can have a rate of up to 10%, then it starts to make you wonder the, what the utility of the LP really is. And that's what I found interesting because I often sit there going, oh, you know, like, should I do the LP? Should I not do the LP? And then when you think about the fact that the post-test probability of picking up that subarachnoid is now a lot less now that we've done the non-con CT brain. And then you consider the likelihood of me having a traumatic tap or a failed tap. It just really made me kind of change my perspective on when I should be LPing patients. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. My biggest issue with this paper was more about the, the decision rule rather than the six-hour CT rule. If you're able to apply the decision rule to exclude someone from having a CT, then that's that's great. That's very helpful. I'm just not sure how many people you can actually do that with. The six-hour CT rule, I thought performed really well, and and as you say, you know, really really good ability to to exclude patients, particularly when you consider that out of the five you know adverse or the five missed cases, two of them were false positives, but you know still just met the case definition. One of them was an incredibly rare event. One of them was a specific situation where you can't really. Use CT. There's one other that I don't remember. I certainly found it very illuminating and very reassuring to know that the vast majority of the time that I'm using that CT and it's within the six hours, I can probably be happy that it's case closed and they can go home. 
in the person who has, you know, legitimately had the real thunderclap headache, the, you know, the person who feels like they've been struck by lightning, who's in agony, who's vomiting, who's, you know, who's genuinely sort of that, that very high um, prevalence subgroup. Um, I would probably trust my gut in that situation and, um, and keep digging, even if the initial CT didn't give me the answer that I was looking for. To your point, Shreyas, with a patient with severe headache and vomiting and a normal non-con CT brain, I think it's also just worth mentioning that, you know, none of us are going to stop digging for that patient anyway. So that patient might have meningitis and may need an LP anyway for other reasons. And I think that's sometimes where this discussion does become a bit tricky because in the clinical world, that's the patient we would continue to investigate for anyway. That's right. In stats, we like to control for the patients who have meningitis, whereas in the real world, we actually are interested in that too. Caroline, in which scenario would you consider a CT angiogram? I think the CTA should be reserved for patients where you've got an inconclusive LP result, you're concerned about a traumatic tap, or you're looking for a cause of a subarachnoid hemorrhage. It seems from what I've read that just doing CT angiograms willy-nilly doesn't really help you kind of buckle down on who's actually got a subarachnoid hemorrhage and may increase the incidental findings of aneurysms and cause more morbidity rather than saving people. Thanks, Caroline. Any take-home points for our listeners? Not every patient requires an LP or a CTA. There's definitely a lot of utility to clinical gestalt when approaching these patients. In general, think about the pre- and post-test probabilities and the likelihood of tests when you're trying to answer your clinical questions. So although not perfect, the six-hour CT rule in many cases may be sufficient to justify not pursuing an LP or a CTA. And when ordering a CT scan for a patient, the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rules may be occasionally helpful in identifying a patient that doesn't actually need a scan. Please remain seated, it is now time for Kit's Corner. At Westmead, we recently moved to a new ED building, and it was quite a lot of effort, moving each implement physically from place to place. And it got me thinking, couldn't we just you know, update and move the building itself. And as it happened, this has happened multiple times, but most impressively in 1930 with the eight-storey, 11,000-tonne Indiana Bell building, which was rotated 90 degrees, moved 30 metres west and 16 metres south over a course of 30 days at about 11 inches per hour. But that's not all. Not only did this happen while the building was in use, but there was no interruption to telephones, gas, electricity, water, or sewage. What a marvel of engineering. No interruption to sewage is a real marvel. I feel like we've gone backwards. 
Thanks for listening to our lockdown special. We hope you enjoyed it. I would like to take this opportunity to thank all our speakers. If you have any questions or suggestions, please email us at investmentedjournalclub@gmail.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media. Thank you and see you next time.